This is Right From The Deep. I'm Karen Ball. And I'm Erin Taylor-Young. And this is the podcast from writers for writers, answering the question, why am I doing this? Right. As writers, editors, and a former literary agent, we're in the deep with you, encouraging you and equipping you to find your truest story in the deep places. Get our show notes and more, including a free audio download on how to safeguard your writer's heart at writefromthedeep.com. Hey guys, here's what's happening at Right From The Deep. Well, a big, big thank you to our patrons on Patreon. That's a platform that enables creatives to get paid. And we're so thankful for our patrons there because putting this podcast together takes time and money and paying for the hosting and all those things. So we're so thankful for our patrons. And if you guys want to check that out, you can get more information at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash right from the deep. And thanks especially to our November Sponsor of the Month, Stacey McLean. We're praying for you on your writing journey, Stacey. And another thanks for our sponsorship from the Novel Marketing Podcast with host Thomas Umstead Jr. It is the longest-running book marketing podcast in the world, and we know and trust Thomas, and we love his podcast. It's great, got lots of great information and advice, and one of those things is Novel Marketing's 10 Commandments of Book Marketing, and we've been bringing those to you. This week, we're talking about commandment number four, thou shalt measure thy marketing. You know, it doesn't do you any good to spend time or marketing dollars on tactics that don't generate sales for you. And the only way you'll know is to measure it, to look at the data. We writers have limited resources in time and money, so we need to be wise in how we invest. Right. And you also have to be careful about not copying someone else's tactics that work for them because it might not work for you. And worse, it might not even work for them because they may or may not be measuring, right? Another bonus to measuring your marketing is that it frees you from blindly following any marketing fads or superstitions that may be out there. You don't have to feel guilty. Isn't that great news? You don't have to feel guilty about not doing some hot new thing everyone else is doing if you know it won't work for you. So for more book promotion and platform help, listen to Novel Marketing in your favorite podcast app or at novelmarketing.com. And one of the things we've also been bringing you are wonders. And today, I'm really marveling at the body of Christ. We've been talking about this in a um, class we've been taking at our church. But did you ever think about the body of Christ? This is a metaphor that we find in the Bible. And when you just think about what a body is, it's living, it's breathing, it's interdependent. It's when one part hurts, you all try to help, you know, it's sharing burdens and it's each being an important contributor. You know, everybody has a place in the body of Christ. You can't say that you're not needed. And I think that it is a wonder how God created this. This is something he designed from the beginning. And, and I, I'm just so thankful for it. So you guys, not only are you an important member of the body, but other people are important members of the body too. Look around and marvel at who God has placed in the body of Christ and, and be thankful and wondrous. Amen. And now... 
Here's the show. Hello, friends, and welcome into the deep with us today. Boy, have we got a treat for you. We have a guest, and I'm going to let Aaron introduce him. Uh, see, you guys, I get to introduce somebody. I'm excited, <laughs> and I am delighted. I'm going to get to introduce Tom Nelson. He is the author of four books, including Work Matters, Connecting Sunday Worship to Monday Work, and we're going to be talking about that today. He's got another book coming out soon. Tom is the president of Made to Flourish. That's a pastor network for the common good, and he's also served on the Board of Regents for Trinity International University. He's a regular speaker and facilitator on faith, work, and economics, and if that's not enough, he has a doctorate from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And on top of all that, he's been the senior pastor at Christ Community Church in Kansas for almost, I'm thinking, 30 years. Now, the reason I know Tom is because when my husband and I moved to Kansas, well, this happened to be the first church on our church shopping quest, and we thought this was going to be a long and arduous quest. Some of you guys might be familiar with that church shopping thing. Well, guess what? For us, we went there, and we never tried anywhere else, because one visit was enough for us to know that that needed to be our church home. Now, Tom Nelson is a humble guy, and he'd probably want to tell you that it is not all because of him that this church is the wonderful place that it is. But I'll tell you, I think a big part of it is because of Tom's example as a genuine and caring servant leader. And that carries through the entire church leadership team and down into the congregation. And we feel like we're on mission together. And my husband and I are delighted to be part of the church. And now I'm delighted that Tom could be here with us today. Welcome, Tom. Wow, Aaron, that's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for your part of the presentation. You know, I feel like I don't get this very often. So thank you for making it more beautiful, you know, and uh, so it's a delight to be with both of you uh, on this podcast. I'm thrilled and uh, excited to have a conversation with you guys. So you seem like pretty amazing, amazing people. Yes, of course we are. But you see, (laughs) now you have to answer the question that every guest on our show has to answer. What does the deep mean to you? Well, when I think of the deep, you know, just uh, I think of St. John the Cross, the great Spanish mystic who labeled this experience of the Christian, and maybe it's an experience of all humans in in their journey, uh, as the dark night of the soul. So when I think of deep, I think of dark, right? So or a place that's difficult. And uh, for me, um, I think when I think of the deep, uh, what, however we understand that time, I do, I do see it both as a, a time of disorientation and a time of orientation mm-hmm. or reorientation. Because mm-hmm. in my, my sort of journey in the deep, uh, there's some clarification in the deep. And I, and I just say a couple, three things really stand out to me. The deep experience, whether it's in my own uh, relationship with God, my work, my creativity, whatever, is it helps me to separate adequacy from competency. So mm-hmm. I have to continually remember that I have a stewardship of competency in my life, but that I'm never adequate, that God is my adequacy. So the adequacy, mm-hmm. competency dynamic becomes more clear in the dark. Uh, Another one would be intimacy versus accomplishment. Hmm. I mean, I need constant reorientation that intimacy is the most important. And that actually 
accomplishment flows out of intimacy. That intimacy mm-hmm. is foundational. So I'm just saying, sometimes I get these things confused in my daily life, right? I'm busy. Adequacy, competency sort of comes together. I get that wrong convergence there. Intimacy, accomplished, gets out of whack. Another one be what I'd say mystery versus creativity. I think that's really true for writers mm. because um, the dark uh, helps me to not miss mystery. Mm. Um, and, and sometimes I confuse mystery with creativity. So it helps me prioritize mystery over creativity. And I think lastly, it would be a sense that the deep for me helps reinforce where my hope lies. Hmm. Not ultimately in the seen, but the unseen realm um, yeah. or my security. So, you know, the deep is disorienting, right? I mean, however <laughs> you say it, we can't get it. It sounds pejorative. It sounds negative, the deep, right? The deep. But it does have a potential to reorient our lives to greater wholeness and uh, greater flourishing, I think. So that's, that's what I think of when I think of the deep. Yeah, I love that. That's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Very cool. So I said we were going to talk about Tom's book, um, Work Matters. You guys okay. out there, I really liked this book. It has a lot of great perspective about work, which, okay, let's face it, that makes up a lot of our day, whether you're a full-time writer or whether you have a day job on top of writing. And I know that there are writers out there who maybe don't love their day job, and that's where this book can really help us. So, Tom, let's just start with a groundwork here. In the mm-hmm. book, you talk about how humans were created for work. Why do you think that's true? Uh, great question. And again, I am assuming that uh, my answer is that my answer to that question, my, at least my comprehensive integral answer to that question is found in Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. So that's where I'm coming from in terms of my framework so if we look at the early chapters of Genesis and the Torah, which means instruction, this great repository of wisdom from the past, what we have in the first three chapters of Genesis, which again is the first part of the Torah, you have a profound picture of a God who works and who reflects uh, that working uh, aspect of his being in making humans. Hmm. Because the text, if we believe in creation and a creator God, this, the emphasis of the first two chapters of Genesis, the primary emphasis is work. God's uh, work himself, God is a creator God. In fact, the first verb in the, in the Genesis account in Barat means to work, it's to create. So God introduces himself, where he's introduced one true God in a Hebrew standpoint as fundamentally a worker. Now we understand he's more than that, he's a personal God and so forth, but that begins to be unveiled later in Revelation. So if you didn't know anything about the God of the Hebrews, and uh, you would begin to realize right away that God is a creator, God is a worker, God, God is an active God. Hmm. Uh, and then he makes humans in God's image, right, in chapter 1. And right after, he says, male and female are made in God's image. Image, or selam, this brilliant Hebrew word, has a sense of reflection and connection, the two main semantic threads. Uh, so uh, humans reflect God's image, uh, and they do that in terms of reflecting what God is like, what He does, His personality, His creativity, but also in not only reflection but connection. That God is deeply relational. That His created um, uh, expression is deeply relational, and humans are that, of course. Uh, and then right after that, 
you know, in, in verse 28, chapter 21, there's five Hebrew imperatives put together, which is very unusual in Hebrew. And it's a picture of how humans fit into the integral creation. So you have this beautiful integral creation, an integral God, and it says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and do it, and have dominion. Huh. So, again, we can unpack this at great length, but what we look at is we understand that humans have a job description. Uh, <laughs> and part of that is being fruitful, right? Right? Yeah. Right. That's the picture, right? They have a job description. And then in Genesis chapter 2, you have another full picture of how humans fit into work. There's an incompletion. There's no, there's water, bush, uh, land, but there's no human to work the ground. So God creates Adam, puts in the garden in 2.15. You have two Hebrew infinitives. Again, writers love this, I trust. But the <laughs> language really matters, right? I mean, language really, really matters. Right. The artistry and the, and the etymology and morphology. So in two, Genesis 2.15... You have this picture that God puts Adam in the garden, right? Um, because the garden is not complete without Adam, hmm. uh, without man, humankind. Uh, there's an incompletion, okay? That's the picture of really part of chapter two, to cultivate and keep the garden. That's the English translation. So the idea of cultivate is nourish, keep is protect. So you have this brilliant picture of how hmm. humans fit into that creative order, and then you have this picture where God says, in this you know, inter-trinitarian conversation, this mystery, it's not good for Adam to be alone. I'm going to make a helper. Now, helper is not at all demeaning. It's not less. It's a very misunderstood word of Ezra. Uh, it, it is a sense of a partner. And the question is, why is it not good for Adam to be alone? Yes, there's a relational component, and marriage is going to respond to that. But the primary focus of the Genesis text is the job description, and it's not you know, cultivate the garden, protect the garden, do the work without Eve, right? So, I mean, I'm just saying part of what we understand, I just want to, I did a little more there because there's so much emphasis of work in the Genesis text as we are introduced to God and our creator and our place in creation. So, uh, it's not that we worship our work or it's idolatry, but right. our work, paid or unpaid, is a real big part of our worship. So, I'm I'm going to wrap it up there, but I'm just saying, if we understand the early chapters of Genesis, if we don't get the book end of the story right, right? If we don't get the front right. and the end, we're going to miss the story. So the early chapters of the story, of the biblical story, are so important. And I'm just saying, a major thread, a major thread of that story and how humans fit into it is the work they do. Because work is fundamentally contribution, not compensation. <laughs> it's yeah. uh, our creative contribution to the creator order. Ooh. I like that. That's great. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Now, in Work Matters, you also talk about this distortion yeah. of work dualism, where one type of work is seen as maybe a higher vocational calling than another. So, for writers out there who feel tasked by God, called by God to write, are, are we in danger of falling into this distortion if we think our writing is a higher, more sacred calling than, say, our day job. And and if that's bad, you know, how can we change that view? Yeah, it's uh, very bad. It's very <laughs> common for all vocations. Can I just say, because let's, let's go back quickly to theology, and then I'll press them on to it. But if we go back to Genesis chapter 2, I mentioned verse 15, that we were created to cultivate. That word cultivate mm-hmm. in creation is avodah. And in the Torah, Abodah, or to cultivate, right, uh, to work the garden, 
is a seamless idea. In other words, it's used to describe a priest in the tabernacle doing priestly things. It's used to describe a farmer in the agrarian context working the land. And it's used to describe someone worshiping God. Now, this is very wow. important because there's no separation. Wow. Right? Abadam means the picture earlier that all of life is meant to be a seamless act of 24-7 worship. Yeah. Um, now, again, again, Genesis 3 comes in, right, and, and disintegrates that. Uh, but the good news of the Bible story is that Jesus came to bring integralness back and, and new creation back. So my point is, Paul will also say, just theologically, Rabbi Paul will say in the New Testament, whatever you do, right, do it heartily unto the Lord. There's, there's no place in the biblical story for uh, platonic uh, dualism of the secular and sacred. Uh, and here's another reason why, right? Because regardless of what a writer does, how will we make our living, whatever we do, if we're changing diapers, if we're helping grandchildren, uh, if we're helping a neighbor, if uh, we're working in the garden, if we're running a company, you know, what, whatever we are doing or writing an actual word, that we live and breathe and serve before God, our audience of one, 24-7. <laughs> we were created to worship God in all that we are, all that we think, all that we do, and every relationship we have as an act of worship. So, again, what is so perilous about a secular-sacred dichotomy is it impoverishes God's worship. Uh, God should be worshipped in everything we do and say. So we have to reclaim ourselves uh, that worship is not just what we do on Sunday. Mm-hmm. I mean, that matters, right? I mean, if you're a Christian, you're a part of a church or a faith community, we do have a, a joy of corporate praise or worshiping. But our primary place of worship is Monday wherever God calls us and whatever we do. And I don't worship God more um, when I give a message, a priest, when I do a cleaning a bathroom at home. Yeah. Wow. All, all of it is an act of worship. And that brings such fullness and meaning and joy, even to the most mundane task. Even when our economic engine, you know, to, to help us provide, is not the same passion as our calling. And many of us find that throughout I- I've always kind of been aware of this because my dad was a pastor of the same little church for 45 years. He and my mom pastored there. But the church was so small that it could never pay him a salary. So he was bivocational. So his his job was as the um, program director at the YMCA here in the Rogue Valley. And the work that he did there with kids and and the things that he did to support those kids and encourage them, especially young men who are from very difficult backgrounds, that was as much a part of him and his ministry as his work was in the church. And we lost my dad in 2016, and I was... I was both amazed and yet not amazed that so many of those kids that he impacted just by being who he is um, came to his service and talked about the change that had happened in their lives because of dad, even if they didn't accept Christ, which I continue to pray that they will. But he was the first positive influence, man influence for a lot of those kids. And he looked at everything that he did as an outgrowth of who God made him to be and what God made him to do. Yeah, yeah I, and that is so true. What a great example. And theologians, I, I've heard this said by a handful, but I think it's true that the greatest heresy of the 20th century in the Western church is the sacred secular dichotomy. Yeah. The damage, the damage of elevating one calling. Now, again, we're not diminishing mas- missionaries and 501c3 workers and pastors. That's an important calling. But but to raise their, their calling at a higher level than 
uh, a stay-at-home mom or a dad, stay-at-home dad, right. or, you know, wh- whatever that is, you're saying is really, really unbiblical and it's damaging to the church, to our world. And so many people, you know, I went into this, the pastor after work had it, who come up to me and say, I've always felt like a second-class citizen. Hmm. Um, you know, because I didn't go into what full-time Christian ministry, which is again yes, another yes. terrible phrase, right? Right? Yeah. And right. I was with someone who was a good soccer player in college. And he said to me, you know, and he was a part of an organization, Christian organization. And he said, because I didn't go on staff with an organization and went in corporate international business, I always felt like I was on the B team. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, like pastors and missionaries were, you know, using an athletic metaphor, right? Well, oh, gosh. The eight, and I'm the B squad. And this is so common across our nation and, it, and even some other parts of the uh, world, tragically. But, but this is one of the greatest perils. And so we need to work very hard at, at having a biblical understanding that everyone is called to serve God in different places, different ways, whether they're paid or not paid, and they're to do it to the glory of God and follow their neighbor. Uh, and don't the transformation you, can be amazing. Yeah. Don't you think that dichotomy, that, that dualism, is what plays into the whole celebrity status of so many um, high-powered pastors and pastors of megachurches? And, and then it contributes to the fall because it gets so focused on them as the center of what's taking place. Or, or for authors as well, best-selling authors. Sure. People treat sure. them like superhumans, yeah. and they're not. I can tell you they're <laughs> not in a negative way, but they, they struggle every day just like we do, and, and they're discouraged and they're disheartened. And when we hold them on those pedestals, we do them such a disservice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I couldn't agree more. And there's a whole combination of factors that work there. But, but, you know, fueling that, like you're saying, can be a sacred secular dichotomy that leads to some people viewing they have a greater ministry or a little more important because it's bigger. You know, both sides of those are very true. It's like, if we have a sacred sector dichotomy and pride fuels all that, you know, what happens is some people, you know, think they're way too important, right? Like, <laughs> right. You know, I'm really being used by God. Other people live under the terrible cloud of like, I've just not done enough for God. I'm just not as good. And so one leads to great pride. One leads to just really discouragement and despair. And it's so right. dangerous versus hmm. faithfulness. Yeah. Right. On that. On that issue of believing uh, you're better and you're all that in publishing, we call that believing your own press. That's never a good yeah. idea. Well, that's for pastors, speakers, all kinds of celebrity stuff. Yep. Right. Very perilous. Well, let's talk a little bit about another um, thing you wrote in your book, which I, I mm-hmm. found so fascinating. You were talking about Jeremiah's message. This is in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. You were talking about how mm-hmm. Jeremiah tells God's covenant people they're in exile. They're in, you know, they're in Babylon. They hate it there. And yet, <laughs> Jeremiah says, hey, settle down. You're going to be there for a while. Seek the welfare of Babylon. You know, how does that apply to writers, maybe not just in their writing, but also at their day jobs? How do they seek the, you know, the welfare of Babylon? Yeah, it, it is surprising because I think the Jewish people at that time thought, oh, you know, Babylon's so bad. I just want to get back to Jerusalem. It is right. stunning. And, and the language that Jeremiah uses is, you know, the picture of family, economics, work. Uh, it is uh, truly seeking the best of a very pagan city and and, and really being a, I'll use James Hunter's language, a faithful presence there rather than mm. separate from culture, 
or accommodate the culture, to be, be fully present there for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. A couple, couple things come to my mind is when I think about writers or what, what we are doing is to understand that a good understanding of creation, I'm going to go back to that again, uh, tells us that God, God's creation was good. Remember the word good, good, good in the end of Genesis, since it's told with it's very good. Yeah. So when Genesis 3 comes, I'm going to come back to this, but we have to get the first part of the story right. Then you have a massive disintegration of God's good creation, but you don't have eradication of it. There's still a remnant of goodness. Yeah. Right? So that's where common grace comes from. I think writers and Christians need to think about the difference between saving grace and common grace, that everyone has God's image print on them, that humans haven't fell as far as they could have, right? There's a gracious aspect that everyone gets part of the story right. And so what, what is important, I think, in common grace is to look at my workplace, look at my context, and to have a posture of humility, a posture of curiosity, a posture of respect for others, mm. um, and to realize that God God's creation is still good, right? Yeah. It, it is fallen, but it's still good, and it's worthy of our, um, you know, encouragement to try uh-huh. to build that culture, to love people, respect people, and then to remember, you know, we are in a moment of human history and redemptive history where we are in the already not yet. So yeah. I work in a parenthesis, right? One day, yet future, it will be as it ought to be. But I live in the ismo, like what is now? And I'm called to be a redemptive agent in that, how I love people, how I do my work, how I serve. Um, so in this already not yet moment, right, we are in a proximate context. Uh, we're not in a full perfection context. So I just encourage people to, to say, wherever God has called you, God has specifically called you there. And common grace is there. And love is there. And to do your best to nourish that common grace. You don't have to agree with everyone. Obviously, we're going to see things differently. But how important it is to be present by your words and your deeds in that place of work and do good work and love your employees or love your fellow uh, uh, colleagues. So I'm just saying live into common grace and understand how important it is in your Monday world. Again, whether you're actually doing your writing or supporting your writing or whatever, and then stay curious. I just think we need to have not enough of certainty, but of teachability. I think writers need to constantly be observers, but to be teachable and curious. Yes. One of my, uh, one of my favorite bumper stickers, I'm not a real bumper sticker fan, y'all, but it's <laughs> to stay curious. It's a simple two words, stay curious. And I think, uh, God, what is God up to? What's going on in the world? What can I learn here? How can I be teachable? Um, and to be a sponge that way. Huh. Yeah. You know, I had, um, I had an example. I used to work in a library and... I had to explain something to a man who was kind of hostile. Um, kind of is probably a nice way of phrasing yeah, it. Yeah, he was yeah, angry, yeah, yeah, difficult, and difficult, I, difficult. I had to explain. I had to take him through a whole process of doing a self checkout, which he did not want to do, but it, for many reasons, I had to do it that way. And this ten second process for most people took like five minutes, and he was, you know, did it wrong and was frustrated and was angry, yeah. and you know, and for whatever reason, God gave me an amazing patience with this man, and that that's Wonderful. all I, I have to say. It was God, you know, and we <laughs> went through this process, and uh, finally, you know, he left. He still wasn't happy, but he got what he needed, and he left. He got and, what he needed. 
yeah. I didn't know that there was a librarian nearby just because of the setup. And she was listening to this whole interchange. And she said to me afterwards, she said, how in the world did you answer that man so kindly and so patiently through that whole Wonderful. process? I could have oh, I never story. done that is what, you know, what she said. And I got to thinking about that and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that someone noticed that was the first thought I had. And then the second thought I had was, you know what? Yes, I was shining God's light and that was purely God's God's grace. But even if nobody saw that, I still am called right. to shine that light and to treat this man as as an image bearer. You know, he deserves my yes, respect. I love that story. Yeah, even yes. if he's not nice, which yes, you know, we dealt nice. with nice people, we dealt with not nice people. So, yeah. you know, um anyway, so the next thing or the last thing really we have time for is I'd love to know yeah. if you have any other tips or advice for writers who are struggling with their day jobs. Maybe they feel creatively stifled or physically or emotionally drained. Any thoughts that you have for them? I don't know if I have any good wisdom. I always encourage people because I can relate to that. I mean, I have multiple tasks on my plate uh, when I'm writing. I mean, there are many things I'm I'm doing, and sometimes it feels like it takes away from my best energy. A couple things I just want to encourage uh, is that God doesn't waste anything. And yeah. and sometimes it's frustrating. Uh, if we feel like we have too many distractions. I'm not saying we should plan well and, and build margin and, and create a space to think. I mean, obviously, that's part of our stewardship. Right. But interruptions, things that come at us that we think take us away from our writing can actually be used by God as a remarkable uh, opportunity that comes back into our writing. I, yeah. I think of that over and over again where I've been frustrated because I, oh, I got, I'm trying to get this chapter done. I got this, this, and this. And there'll be something, not always, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna, but, but there'll be something where I felt like it was a distraction, but actually God used it to not only, you know, teach me, but it found its way into my writing right. very soon. Yeah. Right? It's, I mean, pastors it's, are known for this, right? If people send me, hey, there's an illustration for you, Pastor. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right? I'll say something. That that's a story you need to share. But you know what I'm saying? It's kind of, I'm not minimizing that, that, you know, life is hard, work is hard. It's meant to be worship, but it's sure it's hard. And, um, you know, it's fallen. But I just find that the writing process is always live. It's always dependent on who. You know, the question is, are you depending on your competency or adequacy? Do you have yeah. a good sense of God's presence and timing? And patience. Uh, but I, I think that for me, I'm just transparent. One of the hardest things for me, I mean, I plan for my writing because I write best early in the morning, right? I, have, I should do some planning. Yeah. I, I think that helps. But it's a mystery. It's a fake journey. My adequacy has to be in the Lord as much as I want to be competent. But some of my struggles and frustrations around my life, whether it's, whether it's personal relationship or it's work, actually can be a space where I'm more centered and I recognize the dependency on God and God uses some of that in ways I've just been stunned. Like most of my writing has come out of my failure. Yeah. 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 I, I never, I never imagined I would write on work or economics <laughs> Yeah. But because I made some bad mistakes or, or failure as a pastor. God often uses our frustrations and failures if we have a longer time horizon. Nobody yeah. can say Nobody can say yeah. God doesn't have a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Often it's our weakness or some of the hardest times that God uses the most. Yeah. 
Right. Well, Tom, this has been so delightful. I just, I, I have loved hearing everything that you've shared with our listeners. I, I just know that God is going to use this to bless them and encourage them. And it's been a delight for me because um, I'm realizing that I'm I'm really simpatico with you. I actually have a whole talk that I do Um Two of them. One is nothing is wasted in God's God's economy, oh, and the other wonderful. is the the detours are the journey. <laughs> oh, they are. It's, That's it's, well said. It's really important for us to recognize that everything that comes to us comes by the hand of God, and everything that comes to us is there first and foremost to, as you said, make us into a reflection of God, God's image, and to refine us and to give us that sense of who He has asked us and called us to be as His children in whatever context He has put us. So, Tom, thank you so much. Um, we will have to have you back again. I say this to a number of guests, but it's because as I listen, I think to myself, this guy is a wealth of wisdom <laughs> for our listeners. So thank you so much for planning to put us in your schedule and taking time out of everything that you have to do to be with us. Thank you. It's a delight to be with you both. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for joining us today. You can find previous episodes and more resources at rightfromthedeep.com. And I bet you know someone who needs this podcast, so please share it with them. So until next time, embrace the deep. Your writing and your life will never be the same. <laughs>